Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Nineteen, In a Net. After their return from hunting, they remained for another fortnight at Bearn, and then started. The Countess and Francois to return home and Philip to pay a visit to the Count de Valacour at his chateau in Dauphiny, in accordance with the promise he had given him to visit him on his return to France. Here he remained for a month. The Count treated him with the warmest hospitality, and introduced him to all his friends as the saviour of his daughter. Claire had grown much since he had seen her, when he had ridden over with her father to Landre a year before. She was now nearly sixteen, and was fast growing into womanhood. Philip was already acquainted with many of the nobles and gentry of Dauphiny, who had joined the admiral's army, and after leaving Valacour, he stayed for a short time at several of their chateaux, and it was autumn before he joined Francois at Laville. The inhabited portion of the chateau had been enlarged and made more comfortable, for the king was still firm in his decision that peace should be preserved, and showed marked favor to the section of the court that opposed any persecution of the Huguenots. He had further shown his desire for the friendship of the Protestant powers, by the negotiations that had been carried on for the marriage of the Duke of Anjou to Queen Elizabeth. "'I have news for you, Philip,' Francois said. "'The king has invited the admiral to visit him. It has, of course, been a matter of great debate whether Coligny should trust himself at court, many of his friends strongly dissuading him, but he deems it best in the interest of our religion that he should accept the invitation, and he is going to set out next week for Blois, where the king is now with the court. He will take only a few of his friends with him.' He is perfectly aware of the risk he runs, but to those who entreat him not to trust himself at court, he says his going there may be a benefit to the cause, and that his life is as nothing in the scale. However, he has declined the offers that have been made by many gentlemen to accompany him, and only three or four of his personal friends ride with him. No doubt he acts wisely there, Philip said. It would be well-nigh destruction to our cause should anything befall him now, and the fewer of our leaders in Charles' hands, the less temptation to the court to seize them. But I do think it possible that good may come of Coligny himself going there. He exercises wonderful influence over all who come in contact with him, and he may be able to counterbalance the intrigues of the Catholic party, and confirm the king in his present good intentions toward us. I saw him but two days ago, and offered to ride in his train, Francois said, but he refused decidedly to let me. The friends who will accompany me, he said, have, like myself, well nigh done their work. The future is for you and those who are young. I cannot dream that the king would do wrong to invited guests, but should aught happen, the blow shall fall upon none of those who should be leaders of the next generation. The news of the reception of the admiral at Valois was anxiously awaited by the Huguenots of the West, and there was great joy when they heard that he had been received most graciously by the king, who had embraced him and protested that he regarded it as one of the happiest days in his life, as he saw in his return to his side the end of trouble and an assurance of future tranquillity. Even Catherine de Medici received the admiral with warmth. The king presented him from his private purse with a large sum of a hundred thousand livres to make good some of the great losses he had suffered in the war. He also ordered that he should receive for a year the revenues of his brother the cardinal, who had lately died, and appointed him guardian of one of the great estates during the minority of its heir, a post which brought with it considerable profits. At Coligny's suggestion, Charles wrote to the Duke of Savoy, interceding for the Waldensians, who were being persecuted cruelly for having assisted the Huguenots of France. So angered were the Guises by the favour with which the king treated the admiral that they retired from the court, and the king was thus left entirely to the influence of Montmorency and Coligny. 
the ambassador of Spain, who was further angered by Charles granting interviews to Louis of Nassau, and by his holding out hopes to the Dutch of assistance in their struggle against Elva, also left France in deep anger and with threats of war. The result was naturally to cause a better state of feeling throughout France. Persecutions everywhere ceased, and the Huguenots for the first time for many years were able to live in peace and without fear of their neighbors. The negotiations for the marriage between the Prince of Navarre and Marguerite de Valois continued. The prince was now eighteen and a half, and the princess twenty. The idea of a marriage between them was of old standing, for it had been proposed by Henry II fifteen years before, but at the outbreak of the Huguenot troubles it had been dropped. Marshal Barreau was sent by the king with the royal proposals to the Queen of Navarre, who was now at La Rochelle. The queen expressed her gratitude for the honor offered to her son, but prayed for time before giving a decided answer in order that she might consult the ministers of her religion as to whether such a marriage might be entered into by one of the reformed religion. The news of the proposed marriage, and also of the negotiations that had been opened for a marriage between Elizabeth of England and the Duc d'Alacour, created the greatest alarm throughout the Catholic world. A legate was sent to Charles by the Pope to protest against it. Sebastian, King of Portugal, who had refused the hand of Marguerite when it had been before offered to him, reopened negotiations for it while Philip of Spain did all in his power to throw obstacles in the way of the match. The ministers of the Reformed religion, consulted by the Queen, considered that the marriage of Henri to Marguerite would be a vast benefit to the Huguenot cause, and declared that a mixed marriage was lawful. The English ambassador gave his strongest support to it, and the Queen of Navarre now entered upon the negotiations in earnest, and went to Blois for the purpose. The differences were entirely religious ones, the court insisting that Henri while living at Paris with his wife, should consent to be deprived of all means of worshipping according to his own religion, while Marguerite, while living in Bern, should be guaranteed permission to have mass celebrated there. The king would have been ready to waive both conditions, but Catherine, who, after at first favouring the match, now threw every obstacle in its way, was opposed to any concession. She refused to permit the Queen of Navarre to have any interview with either Charles or Marguerite, unless she also was present, and hesitated at no falsehoods, however outrageous, in order to thwart the efforts of Jean and her friends. The pious Queen Jean, however, was more troubled by the extreme and open profligacy of the court than by the political difficulties she encountered, and in her letters implored her son to insist upon residing at Bierne with his wife, and on no account to take up his abode at Paris. However, at last the difficulties were, the court abandoned its demand that Marguerite should be allowed to attend Mass at Bierne and the Queen of Navarre, on her part, consented that the marriage should take place in Paris, instead of at Bierne, as she had before desired. She then went to Paris to make preparations for the wedding. The great anxiety she had gone through told heavily upon her, and a few days after her arrival at the capital she was seized with a fever, which, in a very short time, terminated her life, not without considerable suspicions being entertained that her illness and death had been caused by poison administered by an agent of Catherine. Jean was, undoubtedly, one of the noblest women of her own or any other time. She was deeply religious, ready to incur all dangers for the sake of her faith, simple in her habits, pure in her life, unconquerable in spirit, calm and confident in defeat and danger, never doubting for a moment that God would give victory to his cause, and capable of communicating her enthusiasm to all around her. A Christian heroine, indeed. Her death was a terrible blow to the Reformed religion. She died on the ninth of June, and the marriage was, in consequence, deferred until August. The admiral had not been present at Blois during the negotiations for the marriage, 
for after remaining there for three weeks, he had retired to his estate at Chatillon, where he occupied himself with the work of restoring his ruined chateau. The Countess Emile had accompanied the Queen of Navarre to Blois, and also to Paris, and had been with her at the time she died. She had sent a message to Francois and Philip to join her there when she left Blois, accompanying her letter with a safe conduct signed by the king. It was a severe blow to both of them, not only from the effect it would have upon the Huguenot cause, but from the affection they had personally felt from her. The king being grievously harassed by the opposite counsels he received, and his doubts as to which of his advisers were honest, wrote to Coligny begging him to come and aid him with his counsel and support. The admiral received many letters imploring him not to go to Paris, where, even if the friendship of the king continued, he would be exposed to the danger of poison, to which, it was generally believed, his brothers and the Queen of Navarre had succumbed. But although fully aware of the danger of the step, he did not hesitate. To one of his counsellors he wrote fearlessly, As a royal officer I cannot in honour refuse to comply with the summons of the king, but will commit myself to the providence of him who holds in his hands the heart of kings and princes, and has numbered my years, nay, the very hairs of my head. One reason of the king's desire for the counsels of the admiral was that he had determined to carry out his advice, and that of Louis of Nassau, to assist the Protestants of Holland, and to embark in a struggle against the dangerous predominance of Spain. As a first step, he had already permitted Louis of Nassau to recruit secretly in France five hundred horse and a thousand infantry from among his Huguenot friends, and to advance with them into the Netherlands. And with these, Louis had, on the 24th of May, captured Mons, the capital of Hainault. The Huguenot leaders did their best to persuade Charles to follow up this stroke by declaring war against Spain, and the king would have done so had it not been that Elizabeth of England, who had before urged him to this course, promising him her aid, now drew back with her usual vacillation, wishing nothing better than to see France and Spain engaged in hostilities from which she could, without trouble or expense, gain advantage. Meanwhile, Catherine, Anjou, and the Guise faction all did their best to counteract the influence of the Huguenots. Elizabeth's crafty and hesitating policy was largely responsible for the terrible events that followed. Charles saw that she had been fooling him, both in reference to his course towards Spain and in her negotiations for a marriage with one or other of his brothers. These matters were taken advantage of by his Catholic advisers, and disposed him to doubt the wisdom of his having placed himself in the hands of the Huguenots. While Elizabeth was hesitating, a blow came that confirmed the king in his doubts as to the prudence of the course he had taken. Elvelage siege to Mons, a Huguenot force of some three thousand men, led by the Sure de Genlis, marched to its relief, but was surprised and utterly rooted within a short distance of the town. Twelve hundred were killed on the field of battle. Some nineteen fugitives were slain by the peasantry. Barely a hundred reached Mons. Coligny, who was preparing a much larger force for the assistance of Louis of Nassau, still strove to induce the king to throw himself heart and soul into the struggle against Spain, and even warned him that he would never be a true king until he could free himself from his mother's control and the influence of his brother Anjou. The queen mother, who had spies everywhere, was not long in learning that Coligny had given this advice, and her hatred against him was proportionally increased. She at once went in tears to Charles, and pointed out to him that it was to her counsel and aid alone that he had owed his success against the Huguenots, that they were now obtaining all the advantages for which they had fought in vain, and that he was endangering the safety of his throne by angering Spain, relying only on the empty promises of the faithless Queen of England. Charles, always weak and irresolute, succumbed at once to her tears and entreaties, and gave himself up altogether to her pernicious counsels. After the death of the Queen of Navarre, the countess travelled back to Laville, escorted by her son and Philip. 
the young men made no stay there, but returned at once to Paris, where, now that Coligny was in the king's councils, there was no ground for fear, and the approaching nuptials of the young king of Navarre would be attended by large numbers of his adherents. They took a lodging near that occupied by the admiral. De La Nuit was not at court, he being shut up in Mourne, having accompanied Louis of Nassau in his expedition. The court was in deep mourning for the Queen of Navarre, and there would be no public gaieties until the wedding. Among the Huguenot lords who had come to Paris were the Count de Valacour and his daughter, who was now seventeen, and had several suitors for her hand among the young Huguenot nobles. Francois and Philip were both presented to the king by the admiral. Charles received them graciously, and learning that they had been stopping at Bierne with the Prince of Navarre, presented them to his sister Marguerite. These gentlemen, Margot, are friends of the king of Navarre, and will be able to tell you more about him than these grave politicians can do. The princess, who was one of the most beautiful women of her time, asked them many questions about her future husband, of whom she had seen so little since his childhood, and about the place where she was to live. And after that time when they went to court with the admiral, who on such occasions was always accompanied by a number of Huguenot gentlemen, the young princess always showed them marked friendliness. As the time for the marriage approached, the king became more and more estranged from the admiral. Queen Elizabeth, while professing her friendship for the Netherlands, had forbidden English volunteers to sail to the assistance of the Dutch, and had written to Elva offering in token of her friendship to hand over Flushing to the Spaniards. This proof of her duplicity, and of the impossibility of trusting her as an ally, was made the most of by Catherine, and she easily persuaded the weak-minded king that hostilities with the Spaniards would be fatal to him, and that, should he yield to the admiral's entreaties, he would fall wholly into the power of the Huguenots. The change in the king's deportment was so visible that the Catholics did not conceal their exultation, while a feeling of uneasiness spread among some of the Huguenot gentlemen at Paris. "'What are you doing, Paris?' Philip said one day when he found his servant occupied in cleaning up the two pairs of heavy pistols they had carried in their holsters. "'I am getting them ready for action, master. I always thought that the Huguenots were fools to put their heads into this cage, and the more I see of it, the less I like it.' "'There can be no reason for uneasiness, Paris.' The king himself has over and over declared his determination to maintain the truce, and even did he harbor ill designs against us, he would not mar his sister's marriage by fresh steps against the Huguenots. What may follow after we have all left Paris, I cannot say. Well, sir, I hope it may be all right, but since I got a sight of the king's face the other day, I have no faith in him. He looks like one word until well nigh out of his senses, and no wonder. These weak men, when they become desperate, are capable of the most terrible actions. A month since he would have hung up his mother and Anjou, had they ventured to oppose him, and there is no saying now upon whom his wrath may fall. At any rate, sir, with your permission I mean to be prepared for the worst, and the first work is to clean these pistols. There can be no harm in that anyhow, Perry, but I have no shadow of fear of any trouble occurring. The one thing I am afraid of is that the king will keep Coligny near him, so that if war should break out again we shall not have him for our general. With the Queen of Navarre dead, the admiral a prisoner here, and de la Nuit a captive in the hands of Elva, we should fight under terrible disadvantages, especially as La Rochelle, La Charité, and Montalbon have received royal governors in accordance with the conditions of the peace. Well, we shall see, master. I shall feel more comfortable if I have got ready for the worst. Although Philip laughed at the fears of Paris, he was yet impressed by what he had said, for he had come to rely very much upon the shrewdness of observation of his follower. When, however, he went that evening to the Count de Valacour, he saw that there was no tinge of such feeling in the minds of the Huguenots present. The only face that had an unusual look was that of Claire. Apparently she was gayer than usual, and laughed and talked more than was her wont. 
but philip saw that this mood was not a natural one and felt sure that something had happened presently when he passed near her she made room for him on the settee beside her you have not heard the news monsieur philip no mademoiselle i have heard no particular news i am glad of it i would rather tell you myself my father to-day laid his commands on me to marry the sure de pascal philip could not trust himself to speak he had never acknowledged to himself that he loved claire de valacourt and had over and over again endeavoured to impress upon his mind the fact that it would be ridiculous for him even to think of her but that her father would never dream of giving her a rich heiress and the last one of the proudest families of dauphiny to a simple english gentleman as he did not speak the girl went on after a pause it is not my wish monsieur philip but french girls do not choose for themselves my father stated his wishes to me three months ago in dauphiny i then asked him for a little time and now he has told me that it is to be he is wise and good and had nothing to say against the sure de pascal who as you know is our near neighbour a brave gentleman and one who i have known since my childhood it is only that i do not love him i have told my father so but he says that it is not to be expected that a young maid should love until after marriage and you have promised yes i have promised she said simply it is the duty of a daughter to obey her father especially when that father is as good and kind as mine has always been to me there he is beckoning to me and rising she crossed the room philip a few minutes later took his departure quietly francois de la ville came in an hour afterwards to their lodgings well philip i did not see you leave the count's did you hear the news before you left the count announced it shortly after you had gone his daughter told me herself i am sorry philip i had thought perhaps but it is of no use talking of that now not the least in the world francois it is natural that our father should wish her to marry a noble of his own province she has consented and there is no more to be said when is henri to arrive we are all to ride out to meet him and to follow him into paris i hope that it will all pass off well why of course it will what is to prevent it the wedding will be the grandest ever known in paris i heard that henri brings with him seven hundred huguenot gentlemen and a hundred of us here will join him under the admiral it will be a brave sight i wish it was all over why it is not often you are in low spirits philip is it the news that has upset you or have you heard something else no but pierre has been croaking and prophesying evil and although i in no way agree with him it has still made me uneasy why what is there to fear not the mob of paris surely they would never venture to brave the king's anger by marring the nuptials by disorder and if they did methinks that eight hundred of us with colony at our head could cut our way through the mob of paris from one end of the city to the other the entrance of the king of navarre into paris was indeed an imposing sight colony with his train had joined him outside the town and the admiral rode on one side of the young king and the prince of conde on the other with them were the dukes of anjou and alencon who had ridden out with a gay train of nobles to welcome henry in the king's name and to escort him into the city the huguenots were still in mourning for the late queen but the sumptuous materials of their dress set off by their gold chains and ornaments made a brave show even by the side of the gay costumes of the prince's party the betrothal took place at the louvre on the seventeenth of august and was followed by a supper and a ball after the conclusion of the festivities marguerite was in accordance with the custom of the princesses of the blood escorted by her brothers in a large retinue to the bishop's palace adjoining the cathedral to pass the night before her wedding there the ceremony upon the following day was a most gorgeous one the king his two brothers henri of navarre and conde 
were all dressed alike in light yellow satin embroidered with silver and enriched with precious stones marguerite was in a violet velvet dress embroidered with fleur-de-lis and she wore on her head a crown glittering with gems the queen and the queen mother were dressed in cloth of gold upon a lofty platform in front of the cathedral of notre dame henry of navarre with his train of protestant lords awaited the coming of the bride who was escorted by the king and all the members of his court the ceremony was performed in sight of an enormous concourse of people by the cardinal bourbon who used a form that had been previously agreed upon by both parties henry then led his bride into the cathedral and afterwards with his protestant companions retired to the episcopal palace while mass was being said when this was over the whole party sat down to dinner in the episcopal palace in the evening entertainment was given in the louvre to the notabilities of paris and after supper there was a mask of the most lavish magnificence on tuesday wednesday and thursday there was a continuation of pageants and entertainments during these festivities the king had shown marked courtesy to the admiral and the huguenot lords and it seemed as if he had again emancipated himself from his mother's influence and the hopes of the protestants that he would shortly declare war with spain were raised to the highest point although the question was greatly debated at the time and the belief that the massacre of the protestants was deliberately planned long beforehand by the king and queen mother is still generally entertained the balance of evidence is strongly the other way what dark thoughts may have passed through the scheming brain of catherine de medici none can say but it would certainly appear that it was not until after the marriage of henry and marguerite that they took form she was driven to bay she saw that in the event of a war with spain the huguenots would become all-powerful in france already the influence of the admiral was greater than her own and it had become a battle of life and death with her for coligny in his fearless desire to do what was right and for the service of france was imprudent enough over and over again to warn the king against the evil influence of the queen mother and the duke of anjou and charles in his fits of temper did not hesitate to divulge these counsels the duke of anjou and his mother therefore came to the conclusion that coligny must be put out of the way the duke afterwards did not scruple to avow his share in the preparations for the massacre of saint bartholomew the duchess of nemours her son henry of guise and her brother-in-law the duc d'aumolay were taken into their counsels and the plan was speedily settled few as were the conspirators taken into the confidence of the queen mother mysterious rumours of danger reached the ears of the huguenots some of these taking the alarm left paris and made for their estates but by far the greater portion refused to believe that there could be danger to those whom the king had invited to be present upon such an occasion in another week coligny would be leaving having as he hoped brought the king entirely round to his views and the vast majority of the huguenot gentlemen resolved to stay until he left paris grew more and more serious francois had left the lodgings being one of the huguenot gentlemen whom henry of navarre had chosen to lodge with him at the louvre you are getting quite unbearable paris with your long face and your grim looks philip said to him on the friday morning half in joke and half in earnest why man in another week we shall be out of paris and on our way south i hope sir monsieur philip with all my heart i hope so but i feel just as i used to do when i was a boy living in the woods and i saw a thundercloud working up overhead i cannot tell you why i feel so it is something in the air i wish sir oh so much that you would leave at once that i cannot do Paris. i have no estates that demand my attention no excuse whatever for going i came here with my cousin and i shall leave with him well sir if it must be it must but what is it you fear Paris? when one is in a town sir with catherine de medici and her son anjou and the guises there is always something to fear guise is the idol of the mob of paris who have already shown themselves ready to attack the huguenots 
He has but to hold up his finger, and they will be swarming on us like bees. But there are troops in the town, Pierre, and the king would punish Paris heavily were it to insult his guests. The king is a weathercock, and goes whichever way the wind blows, monsieur. Today is with the admiral, tomorrow he may be with the Guises. At any rate, I have taken my precautions. I quite understand that if the danger is foreseen, you will all rally round the admiral and try to fight your way out of Paris. But if it comes suddenly, there will be no time for this. At any hour, the mob may come surging up the street, shouting, as they have often shouted before, Death to the Huguenots. Then, monsieur, fighting would not avail you. You would be unable to join your friends, and you would have to think first of your own life. I have been examining the house, and I find that from an upper window one can gain the roof. I got out yesterday evening after it was dark, and found that I could easily make my way along. The tenth house from here is the one where the Count de Valacour lodges, and it is easy to gain access to it by a window in the roof. There will be some of your friends there at any rate, or we can pass down through any of the intervening houses. In the three before we reach that of the Count, Huguenots are lodged. The others belong to Catholics, but it might be possible to pass down through them and go to the street and observe. I have bought for myself some rags which are worn by the lowest of the mob. And for you, amongst gown and hood, these I have placed securely against a chimney on a roof. I have also, monsieur, and Paris's eyes twinkled, bought the dress of a woman of the lower class, thinking that there might be some lady you might be desirous of saving. You frighten me, Paris, with your roofs and your disguises, Philip said, looking with wonder at his follower. Why, man, this is a nightmare of your own imagination. It may be so, master. If it is, no harm is done. I laid out a few crowns uselessly, and there is an end of it. But if it should not be a nightmare, but a real positive danger, you would at least be prepared for it, and those few crowns may be the saving of our lives. Philip walked up and down for some time. At any rate, Pierre, you have acted wisely. As you say, the cost is as nothing, and though my reasons revolt against a belief in this nightmare of yours, I am not such a fool as to refuse to pay any attention to it. I know that you are no coward, and certainly not one to indulge in wild fancies. Let us go a step farther. Suppose that all this should turn out true, and that you, I, and some lady are in disguise in the midst of a howling mob shouting, Death to the Huguenots. What should we do next? Where should we go? It seems to me that your disguise for me is a badly chosen one. As a monk, how could I keep with you as a beggar, still less with a woman? When I bought the monk's robe, I had not thought of a woman, monsieur. That was an afterthought. But what you say is just. I must get you another disguise. You shall be dressed as a butcher or a smith. Let it be a smith by all means, Paris. Besides, it would be safer. I would smear my face with dirt. I should get plenty on my hands from climbing over the roofs. Let us suppose ourselves, then, in the mob. What should we do next? That would all depend, sir, whether the soldiers follow the Guises and take part with the mob in their rising. If so, Paris would be in a turmoil from end to end, and the gates closed. I have thought it all over again and again. And while your worship has been attending the entertainments, I have been walking about Paris. If it is at night, I should say we had best make our way for the river. Take a boat and drift down, or else make for the walls and lower ourselves by a rope from them. If it is in the day, we could not do that. And I have found a hovel, at present untenanted, close to the walls, and we can wait there until night. You will end by making me believe this, Paris, Philip said angrily, as he walked up and down the room with impatient steps. If you had a shadow of foundation for what you say, even a rumor that you had picked up in the street, I would go straight to the admiral. But how could I go and say, my servant, who is a faithful fellow, has taken it into his head that there is a danger from an attack on us by the mob. What think you the admiral would say to that? He would say that it was next door to treason to imagine such things, and that if men were to act upon such fancies as these, they would be fit only for hospitals for the insane. 
Moreover, he would say that even if you had evidence, even if you had something to show that treachery was meant, he would still, in the interest of France, stay at his post of duty. At this moment the door opened, and Francois de Laville entered hurriedly. "'What is the matter, Francois?' Philip exclaimed, seeing that his cousin looked pale and agitated. "'Have you not heard the news?' "'I have heard nothing. I have not been out this morning.' "'The Admiral has been shot.' Philip uttered an exclamation of horror. "'Not killed, Francois. Not killed, I trust.' "'No, two balls were fired. One took off a finger of his right hand, and another has lodged in his left arm.' He had just left the king, who was playing at tennis, and was walking homewards with two or three gentlemen, when an arquebus was fired from a house not far from his own. Two of the gentlemen with him assisted his home, while some of the others burst in the door of the house. They were too late. Only a woman and a manservant were found there. The assassin had fled by the back of the house, where a horse was standing and waiting. It is said that the house belongs to the old Duchess of Guise. It is half an hour since the news reached the palace, and you may imagine the consternation it excited. The king has shut himself up in his room. Navarre and Condé are in deep grief, but they both regard the admiral almost as a father. As for the rest of us, we are furious. There was a report that the man who was seen galloping away from the house, from which the shot was fired, was that villain Marvel, who so treacherously shot Dumoy, and was rewarded by the king for the deed. It is also said that a groom in the livery of Guise was holding the horse when the assassin issued out. Navarre and Condé have gone to Coligny. The king's surgeon is dressing his wounds. End of chapter 19. Recorded December 2008.